So we're talking okay. like dinosaurs times. Yeah, like T Rex time. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I think T Rex, unless T Rex was the Triassic. I know it wasn't the Jurassic, despite the name of the park. <laughs> wow, we're really we're gonna get a copyright strike if I keep singing yeah. music. Not Yet a Doctor, the podcast where we find forests of knowledge in the most unlikely of places. My name is Sienna, and I'm a PhD student at McGill University in Montreal, Canada. My name is Beth, I'm a PhD student studying particle physics at Sapienza University of Rome. And my name is Alistair, and I am a PhD student in analytical chemistry in Kingston, Ontario. Great! So today I have a pretty, I think a pretty... PhD three to be. What? And we are your PhD three to be. <laughs> oh, and we are your PhD three to, to be. be. Okay, <laughs> good. We got through that. <laughs> Today, I have a pretty exciting episode for us. I interviewed a professor from the University of Kansas in the United cool. States. So I'm just gonna jump right into our topic of the day. Unless you guys have any guesses, which I know you sometimes like to do. That. Um, I like to guess. I yeah. think we're talking about trees. And okay. no. I, th- <laughs> um, I remember from our quiz episode that you had a cool fact about the world's tallest tree and how they measure trees. So oh, true. I think it might be something to do with that, maybe. Okay, good guess. Beth, any guesses? Um, I don't have any guesses except that it's going to be something to do with biology and something to do with <laughs> trees. And trees are already something to do with biology, so... I don't, I don't know how to narrow it down any further. I also just want to record an apology um, to our listeners. If you can hear any background noise in my recordings, then I can only apologize, but I have neighbors. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we make do with our recording studios. Um, spaces. Yeah. 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 <laughs> uh, yeah, so I'm going to let our guest introduce himself for this episode, and I think I think he also introduces the topic. My name is Brian Atkinson, and I'm an assistant professor and curator at the University of Kansas. Um, My field of study is paleobotany, meaning that I study fossil plants. Uh, There are a myriad of perspectives in paleobotany. There are those who focus on the ecology of ancient and extinct plants. Um, those who kind of use fossil plants to do biostratigraphy and date um, particular rock layers. Then there are those who are more interested in plant evolution, who are um, integrating fossil plants into um, evolutionary analyses to understand certain patterns that kind of shape the tree of life for plants. Um, and I'm on that latter perspective. And so a lot of my work involves kind of um, collecting fossils and describing them, and then also um, trying to infer their impact on our understanding of evolution. <gasps> so that so we're talking about plant dinosaurs? Yeah, exactly. We're talking <laughs> about plant dinosaurs today. Plant dinosaurs are cool. I mean, dinosaurs in general are cool, but plant dinosaurs are even cooler. Yeah, so they're not uh, dinosaurs. Dinosaurs are animals, but like, are reptiles, chickens. Yeah. (laughs) But yeah, throughout the whole, you know, throughout the whole history of the Earth, 
we had plants growing and living and becoming fossils. So yeah. there's an abundance of plant fossils out there to study. And that's what Dr. Brian Atkinson does as he looks at these fossils and yeah, infers evolutionary relationships between both fossil plants and then plants that we still have today. So living plants, I guess. So maybe we'll go on to talk about this, but aren't ferns like the oldest plants that we still have today? Like you can Oof, find I should have ferns asked that question. through the fossil record. I just yeah. I remember like I've been to a number of science museums and often when they mm-hmm. have like the dinosaurs exhibit, they also have fossils of plants and they talk about the early like before dinosaurs the early life in the sea and on the ground and you often see really interesting fossils of ferns and ferns i don't know (laughs) i don't know what other plants but yeah ferns are very successful plants and they are some of the one of the oldest groups of plants on earth and especially compared to sort of the plants that you and like that you might think of more often or might have more of like a relevance to your life. Like most trees are actually more newly evolved than ferns. So Mm -hmm. conifers and angiosperms, which are the flowering plants and make up like flowering trees are much more recently evolved than ferns are. Ferns are quite old. Yeah. That's cool. So I'm just going to play another clip because I think paleobotany is a super cool topic, but I'm also was wondering how does somebody get into plant fossils as a career? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. So I asked him a bit about his background, how he got to become a paleobotanist. That's a, uh, that, so let me try to answer this in, in a, um, at least a short-winded uh, way. So I went to Ohio University as an undergrad um and I was a plant biology major and I got into plant biology because I was kind of interested in you know the green movement that was kind of kicking off but um, right when I was going to grad school or at least the most some or anyways a recent version of the green movement um but then I started you know I took this class called diversity of life and I got more into kind of the natural history and and biology of plants. And I really opened my eyes to just how weird plants are. And I got more interested in their evolution and so forth um, and their ecology. And I tried, you know, several different, um, I had the opportunity to try several different um, research uh, projects as an undergrad. And I um, did everything from plant pathology and I even ventured outside of plants, but I didn't really find anything that clicked, you know? And um, I went to this talk on campus that that a professor was giving and it was about fossil plants, paleobotany. And he was talking, it just kind of blew me away. And I was like, I didn't even know this was an actual thing. And so I immediately like went up to him after his talk and asked if he had any research opportunities for undergrads. And mm-hmm. he basically told me he has a deal for me. And um, after that, it, he gave me a project and it, that click happened. And uh, yeah. um, to me, it just felt very intuitive and, um, and 
importance of fossils to understand evolution just seemed very obvious. And mm-hmm. so here I am. Cool. Um, and it's really, um, it, it keeps me curious. And so also keeps me engaged. And so that's kind of how I got into it. Yeah. It's great. You found your field that really clicked. That's such an exciting feeling. Yeah, totally. Totally. So that's how he got into plant fossils. But before we get deeper into plant fossils, I asked him a follow-up question because I don't know if you heard there, but he did say plants are weird. And I figured you'd guys want to know why plants are weird. (laughs) I want to know what plants well, I, are weird. I figured that's what we're going to talk about. Well, we're going to talk about a, a bit about that and a bit about fossil plants. So, okay. of course, that was my next question. What's weird about plants? They kind of exist in their own, like, space-time almost. Uh, like, you know, they're actually quite active organisms, but the way that they're active, we can't perceive it because it's at a slower rate. But one of the things that really got me was the whole life cycle, the reproductive life cycle of plants is so elegant and just so different from animals and the way that plants have modified their life cycle. And it really, you know, a lot of it is focused on how they spread their spores and pollen and how they, you know, make their seeds and so forth. It was just, I don't know, it was kind of just really trippy. And um, to me, it just really felt like plants are indeed um, aliens. They're just terrestrial aliens instead of extraterrestrial. Basically, you can think of plants having like a, a species of plant is composed of two different types of organisms, one that makes the gametes and one that makes the spores. And in order for that life cycle to make, to come full circle is, is really elegant and synchronous coordination between those two organisms more or less so are we going to be talking about plant sex if you want to we can i was going to (laughs) (laughs) well that's what he was talking about there that is really interesting this is a pg podcast plant reproduction is pretty pg but i don't know if you guys know anything about how plants reproduce or not oh my goodness (laughs) i took biology 12 biology 11 yeah. So long ago. Um, I learned how plants reproduce in primary school and my knowledge hasn't okay. developed since. I wonder what they <laughs> teach about plant reproduction in primary school. Um, that like stamen. Oh, okay. Sta- yeah. Stamen. Like about the anatomical parts. And like, yeah. And then and it all happens, basically. Like they taught us about like... Like human yeah. reproduction, and then like it's not that. You learned different. about plant reproduction during your human reproduction <laughs> lessons, and how they're not that <laughs> different. <laughs> no, but like the fundamental of like one part has to meet the other part, and then hey presto, you've got true. a new organism. That holds true for many many same. species. That's that's correct. Right. Yeah, and that's like my knowledge of plant re- mm-hmm. reproduction so as i remember it you've got like the gametes and the pollen and like mm-hmm. the gamete like i don't know part of the plant sits in the ground and waits to like be fertilized by the pollen um that's the extent of my knowledge yeah so it depends on the type of plant but what he was explaining and what i think is what's really trippy about plants is if you think about it if you compare it to humans or mammals or something 
if you guys, you know that we are all formed up of the egg meeting the sperm, creating t- two sets of chromosomes. Mm-hmm. And this creates called diploid yeah. because di is two and ploid chromosomes, more or less. But okay. the egg and sperm, that makes them haploid. So that means half <laughs> ploid, <laughs> which yeah. there's nobody that's just ploid, but, uh, <laughs> you know. Yeah, that doesn't really but that's make okay. Sense, but okay. <laughs> and so the idea is that in our in our bodies, we are mostly cells that are this diploid cell. That's two cell or two sets of the chromosomes. But all of our reproductive cells, mm-hmm. so eggs and sperm that we've created, are haploid or one set of chromosomes. And this, there's no sort of there's two different processes that create diploid or haploid cells or at least like that can divide cells so we have mitosis and meiosis which you might also remember from sort of you're basic taking me biology back. courses yeah you're taking me back to grade 11 biology so mitosis is a process that splits a yeah. cell and preserves the the ploid number essentially the chromosome number so if you have a diploid cell that undergoes mitosis it creates a diploid cell and a diploid cell mm-hmm. but if you have yeah. meiosis which is just really missing T, then you have a diploid cell that undergoes meiosis creates two haploid cells. So it doesn't preserve the chromosome number of the original cell. Mm-hmm. It splits it right, in half. which is what happens when exactly. you gametes. But in all mammals, the gametes don't ever undergo cell division themselves. Okay. So they don't ever create right. any more structures. They're just created through meiosis, and then they wait around to be combined with another one and start dividing again as a diploid organism. Mm-hmm. Okay. All plants, yeah. as far as I'm aware, have a structure, the spore-producing structure, that is diploid, but then it also has the gamete-producing structure that is haploid. So in this structure or organism, these haploid cells undergo mitosis. So that means they take haploid cells and produce more haploid cells. Interesting. And this like varies for different plants. So in trees, the major and like larger, higher order plants, the main part of the plant that you see is the diploid part. So this double chromosome body. But in ferns and in mosses especially, ferns have kind of this large structure underground that maybe is what Alistair was thinking of that is formed of like many cells that are all haploid and produced through mitosis. And mosses, the major body that you see, is actually the haploid body. So it's this gamete-producing body that isn't diploid at all. And it, hmm, So yeah, it's cool. really weird and really cool and very different from uh, human <laughs> life cycles. Mosses are fantastic. Right, hence why the terrestrial yeah. aliens. Yeah, terrestrial. Yes. Terrestrial aliens. Yeah. That was a really cool, it's been a cool description. Yeah. So it's kind of cool to think about. The weirdness of plants is that they have these sort of two organisms that make them up, and it's the haploid dividing organism and the diploid dividing organism. Yeah, interesting. I remember learning all of this in grade 11 and like memorizing it and, and stuff, but I've, like I have with chemistry <laughs> in our oxidane episode, I've come to really appreciate it more. Yeah. Relearning it, you know, with a different, another perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah and it makes you agreed. like it's definitely curious how many ways of reproducing themselves that organisms have discovered and 
used and modified because i mean plants can mm-hmm. also reproduce themselves asexually um which is a whole yeah. other thing and some plants like self-fertilize and stuff right like yeah yeah you like can within, have self-fertilization like, for sure yeah on the because because all plants as far as i'm aware mm-hmm. <laughs> this may not be entirely factually accurate but most if not all plants have the potential to produce both male and female gametes right Mm-hmm. But they produce them usually, like Beth was saying, on separate parts of the flower. Mm-hmm. Right, yeah. And so you can identify, yeah, you can identify okay. kind of like the different male or female parts of the flower. So they can essentially self-fertilize. Mm-hmm. Cool. But moving along. I mean, we could just talk about plant sex all day, but. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah, we could. <laughs> but I didn't really prep to talk about it all day. <laughs> That's okay, we don't have to talk about it. I'm really curious about (laughs) paleobiology, too. Yeah. So before we get into the plant fossils specifically, I asked him more because obviously there's a lot of different types of plants, like we were saying. So there's ferns, there's mosses, there's conifers, there's flowering plants. So I asked Dr. Atkinson about what kind of plants that he is particularly interested in. Let's see here. I'm mostly focused on flowering plants. Although I do work with conifers and I'm starting to work with ferns, um, but flowering plants um, are kind of my bread and butter right now. And I'm particularly interested in flowering plants because they have a very unique evolutionary history in which they show up relatively late in the fossil Mm -hmm. record, about 140 million years ago. Okay. And then um, they almost appear like very modern. Um, like they, it's not, there's no, let me put it this way. There are no transitional, quote unquote, transitional fossils that, you know, you can link flowering plants to other groups of plants. So it's a really bizarre group as far as that is concerned. And then they just diversify super rapidly um, in which you have all major living groups of flowering plants by the close of the Cretaceous period. So at 66 million years ago. So you went, they show up at 140 million years ago. And then like, they're almost like all the major groups are there at 66 million years ago. Wow. So it's this really extraordinary evolutionary story that we're still trying to wrap our minds around. Yeah. And um, I'm particularly interested in how like some of the more diverse groups of flowering plants can be integrated in evolutionary analyses so it can better tease apart that rapid diversification. And um, um, but anyways, so flowering plants, those are the type of plants I typically study. Can you um, provide any context for like when humans diverged in the million years ago timeline? Or like... Yeah, like how long ago mm-hmm. we talked. Because I was thinking it's really interesting to look at flowering plants in the fossil record because you need pollinators, presumably. Like flowering plants produce flowers so that the pollen gets carried by animals or bees. <laughs> but, um, you know. And if you want to know more about bees. <laughs> you can check out our episode on bees at episode four. So according to the human evolution timeline the interactive Mm -hmm. one provided by the smithsonian national museum of natural history sounds credible homo (laughs) sapiens evolved in the last like within one million years ago oh okay wow (laughs) 
Um, I can tell you, so the 140 to 60 million years ago is pretty much smack dab in the Cretaceous period. Mm-hmm. So, so when crabs were being created? I don't know when crabs were created, but mm-hmm. dinosaurs were around. Oh no, that's crustaceous. That's that's fine. I'm bad. pretty sure the majority of dinosaurs lived in the Cretaceous period, like T. Rex. Okay, so we're talking like dinosaurs okay. times. Yeah, like T. Rex time. T. Rex lived during the late Cretaceous period. Okay, cool. So, so. T. Rexes and flowering plants. And oh my god, I could just picture like a T. Rex <laughs> little flower in her hair. <laughs> being, like, in her hair. <laughs> you better tell the uh, paleo. <laughs> What a paleobiologist that T-Rexes had hair, because I don't think they know that. <laughs> <laughs> well, didn't they have, like, feathers or something? Yeah, they had, like, feathers, right? Um, I think a lot of dinosaurs did. I don't know particularly about T-Rex. Right. No. Oh. Not hair, but hair. just, but just you thing. could just picture it, just like, T-Rex has got a cute yeah. little, little trying Cretaceous era flower trying mm-hmm. to attract a... A big, handsome yeah. man t- T-Rex. I wasn't gonna go that direction. If you wanna, if they, if if that's what attracts, I was thinking two lesbian T Rexes. But you know. <laughs> and just to now like, we're talking about T Rex sex. My oh, God. Yeah. <laughs> to put it in like further context, humans like originally, I guess species related to humans, it looks like started evolving like seven million years ago. Okay, okay. so this is so, like, like well before long humans. Yeah, yeah, long yeah. time ago. Okay. Humans and dinosaurs never saw each other, unfortunately. Yeah, probably fortunately. <laughs> I don't think we close. would have survived if we came across any dinosaurs. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Certainly would have been even more anxious of creatures. If Michael Crichton had anything to say about it, the writer of Jurassic mm-hmm. Park. Yeah. So, well, this yeah. took a turn. <laughs> <laughs> so anyways, 140 to 60 million years ago, smack down okay. in the Cretaceous okay. period, these is when okay. flowering plants first arrived and then diversified really fast. Yeah. So flowering plants, just to kind of also sum that up, is I think a majority of the plants that we think of, like grasses Mm -hmm. are flowering plants. Even if you've never seen a flower of a plant, it might probably be a flowering plant unless it is a moss, fern, or conifer. Hmm. So pretty much everything else is flowering plants. (laughs) Fruit trees are flowering plants. Yeah. Yeah. So then why have I never seen a grass flower despite having seen a lot of grass in my life. Um, I think it's because of the way that grass is monocultured in like mm. yards. So you've probably seen if you've ever seen wild grasses, you're more likely to see a yeah, grass flower. I but I think they're also quite small. Okay. Some flowers are very small. But yeah, I'm okay. not sure why um why yard grass, lawn grass doesn't really flower. Lawns also it's always weird. mowed. Yeah. Why do we why do we do that? Why do we put fake not fake grass, but like why? Why do you put down this greenery I'm, that... <laughs> I would like to come against lawns. I'm coming out as a lawn hater. I do not like lawns. <laughs> you don't like lawns? No. They're, I mean, they're bad for the environment. They use a lot of water and... Mm-hmm. Like... I mean, they yeah, don't provide like any do... flowers for pollinators. Yeah. I mean, yes, fair. All of this is fair. Mm-hmm. Um, especially if you're, like, obsessive about your lawn. But it's a nice place to like, sit. I'm talking about residential lawns. Like, parks and stuff are nice, sure. But, like... Parks can have so much better, diverse nature, and often do. Yeah, and you could also um, have like there's a lot of really nice like clovers and like short ground plants that create really moss. nice mosses. <laughs> mosses mosses are so... great to sit on. Clover I is great to sit mosses. on. There's a lot of like great plants that you can use to like cover the ground that could also be 
you could mm-hmm. have multiple different species of plants, which creates a healthier mm-hmm. ecosystem and provides more habitat for bugs and more food for bugs and other animals. That wouldn't just be a straight up monoculture of a go off Sienna of a plant that requires a lot of water to yeah um, survive. Anyway, we're getting distracted. Yeah, sorry. That's <laughs> I just wanted to go on that That's tangent because I thought you guys would agree that lawns yes. are kind of dumb. Yeah. So, anyways, grasses are flowering plants. Mm. Yeah. Next, we just talked about sort of what are plant fossils. How does he study them? You know what what you. How do you get a plant fossil? What are you looking for? And how Mm -hmm. do you look at it? Mm -hmm. There's a particular preservation I work on, um, which is called permineralization. And these fossils are preserved in three dimensions down to the cellular level. And so what I do is either I will um, get a micro CT scan. So I get a 3D scan of the fossil and um, it's external morphology and it's internal anatomy. And then, um, and I work with a colleague at University of Michigan, Selena Smith, um, that stuff. And then I can also, most of the time, section those fossils. And so I can make microscope slides because I can get all their histology and so forth, Mm -hmm. which is all very important information for, doing kind of these downstream analytical um, work. So anyways, it's a little bit about the fossils I study. What does histology mean? Histology is just like the technique of looking at cellular structures using a microscope pretty much. That's Mm -hmm. super cool. So they can basically take a fossil and scan it and get Mm -hmm. a 3D image, Yeah. but then also do histology and stuff. Yeah. I'm curious. He said downstream analytical analytical techniques, and I'm curious oh what God. that is. But, uh, <laughs> of course you are, Alistair. <laughs> you know me. Typical. Um, <laughs> so when a plant 65 to 143 million years ago died, mm-hmm. it was buried... I, can you run over how fossils are made? Because yeah. <laughs> I, I know conceptually like fossils are made because things are buried by rock or ash or stuff and then like mm. the 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 i don't know the structures get replaced by rock and that's what creates a fossil so yeah kind of not exactly so in he's saying he studies per mineralization per mineralization uh-huh. um i'm bad at saying that word quickly and i don't know why but <laughs> and most dinosaur bones are also per mineralized fossils uh-huh. so it's a process of fossilization in which mineral deposits form internal casts of organisms. So essentially, because there's a lot of water in cells, when a cell plant thing structure dies, this water is going to flux and be replaced with like water that has a lot of mineral in it. Mm. And then these minerals are going to get deposited and crystallized within the cells and around the cells of the plant or animal. It's the first step in petrification, which you may yeah. know is the complete mineralization of a sort of carbon-based structure. So you can have petrified yeah. wood, in which case all of the carbon, including the cellulose of the plant walls, has been replaced with minerals. Mm. But permineralization is a little bit like less than that, where it's mostly that you just get mineral and rock deposits or minerals forming within the spaces of the cells. He can also explain permineralization as well. Okay. It is almost like um, the fossil is petrified, mm-hmm. but 
So you've seen like petrified wood and that sort of stuff, right? Um, when you have something that's permineralized, the organic, some um, form of the original organic material is still preserved. So there's still carbon and stuff in there instead mm -hmm. of it being completely replaced by minerals. So that's kind of permineralization in a nutshell, basically three-dimensionally preserved and often you'll have the cell, cellular detail preserves as wow. well. So that permineralization in a nutshell, which is kind of funny because he does study fruiting bodies. So <laughs> he may have looked at nutshells that have been permineralized. Cool. So that's why he can get such good resolution. Yeah. Uh, it's because it's actually on the cell cellular level. Yeah. So it kind of preserves mm. the shape of the cells because it fills them and then so rockifies them, mineralizes them. Yeah. <laughs> you know. them. Okay. Um, does it rockify them around the clock? <laughs> <laughs> that is Insert guitar twang here. Um, yeah, I move back to the room. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's so interesting. I mean, I'm sure my friend, one of my friends is a, a curator at a museum and mm -hmm. I, I like thinking about museum preservation and curation and stuff. Um, and so obviously this would probably not be the best way to preserve something, but nature has a way of preserving things from 65 million years ago mm -hmm. that have mm -hmm. lasted for 65 million years. Like yeah. it, it's really, and it, and it happens naturally. Like nobody went in and was like, okay, we're going to inject a crystallizing <laughs> thing into the cells so that they'll be, you know, hardened and, uh, resistant to change over 65 million years. Yeah. Like, it just happens. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's fascinating. Yeah. It's wild. Mm -hmm. And the other cool thing is that it happens in plants and animals. Like, it, <laughs> it, you know, you, you get fossils of everything. Not yeah. everything. But well, like, it happens in, like, I mean, I guess algaes are kind of plant-like. Yeah. Not really. They're microbes. Not Do you sure get fossils of algae? Yeah. Cool. Um course <laughs> yeah uh, you can yeah you can get a fossil and i think anything. you i think people have like found maybe impressions or fossilized bacteria but i would have mm. to triple check that too those would probably just be very hard to see because very small very small <laughs> as we've small discussed boys. previously yes um, but small yeah some of the oldest boys. some of the oldest living creatures on earth are also kind of like what do you mean some of the oldest living creatures so stromatolites are these like column structures that are formed by mats of cyanobacteria and so essentially as the lower mat dies it kind of creates these layered sedimentary formations uh -huh. and in these, the ocean um in like tidal areas not in the okay. ocean but like on the beach i guess next to the ocean mm -hmm. and so these build up layer by layer growing gradually over time and so they yeah they're rare today but fossilized stromatolites exist and they provide records of ancient life on earth according to wikipedia wow so yeah. I'm, i keep flashing back to a museum i was at i think it was the dinosaur museum at drumheller in mm -hmm. alberta but they had a uh depiction of early life in the oceans okay. and everything was magnified a hundred times or something but at least I think it was magnified. If it wasn't magnified, that's terrifying because there were these giant, like, shrimp. But you walked through this tunnel of glass. It was almost like you were at an aquarium. Like, it was glass all around, but you could see into the into the ocean. Mm -hmm. It was just, you know, lit and just mm. plastic figures. But, like, 
it was these giant shrimp-like things and these giant seaweeds and and I think it was magnified so that you could see it better. But I'm what, maybe it wasn't. What era was this? Did you say? Oh, I don't know. I don't know. But it was pretty cool because you could walk through it and it had like funky lights and stuff. <laughs> because I know that th- like so there was a lot of giant. No, don't tell me this. I don't want to know. <laughs> larger species. <laughs> um. In the. I, I don't know, in the fossil record, so there is was a shrimp fossil that was found to be... No. No. ...over three feet. No! So, a meter oh long. My God. No. <laughs> You're telling me that that so entire thing was life-size? So it might have been a life-sized no. shrimp. No! Oh, I don't want to think about was that. Was it a meter long? Yes, it was huge. And I know, and plants, plants were really big back then as well like ferns and seaweeds and stuff they grew much bigger than they grew yeah. these days chill okay. out mate they've been dead for millions of years i know but it's just creepy to think you about. won't be attacked by a giant <laughs> shrimp don't worry think about how much shrimp you could eat all you can eat they're shrimp. gonna get revenge on me for all the shrimp that i've eaten <laughs> oh my gosh okay so to move us back to on topic so he just discussed how he looks at the fossils which is through sectioning and histology to look at cellular level things mm-hmm. And also he can kind of recreate 3D structures using micro CT, which is a form of like X-ray um, tomography. Mm-hmm. So you shoot X-rays at it and it tells you information about the structure. Mm-hmm. It's like a CT scan like um, if, you, if you were to get a, exactly, like an X-ray. Very similar to a CT scan. Yeah, I have, a, I have a clip. I asked him what micro CT is and how it's used. Yeah. So I okay. will just mm-hmm. let Brian Atkinson explain to okay. you the process of micro CTing fossils. Uh, micro CTs, basically X-ray tomography. You've been, have you ever had like a CT scan done? If you've ever had some sort of injury or whatever? Yeah, I haven't, but I know, I know of them. <laughs> okay, great. So those yeah. are kind of like the medical grade ones, right? When you're trying to look at fossils and stuff that's preserved in rock, you basically have to set that micro CT up to like kill. Right, because like, it's like some high intense X-rays. Okay. So basically, you're you're using an industrial micro CT scanner. Okay, um, so that's how micro CT works on fossils. Uh, until I am fossilized, I don't want to go into one of these scanners. Yeah. I don't think you'd be allowed to go into. Nobody's going to put you in one of okay, the scanners until you're a fossil. Right. Well, that's more of a worry for me than the giant shrimp. <laughs> yeah, I that's think fair. It's inter- it just was funny. He said, like, industrial-sized micro-CT scanner. It's just like an ox- a bit yeah. of an oxymoron. Like jumbo shrimp. Yeah. Oh, my God, like jumbo shrimp. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> so many oxymorons. I think, I think the micro-CT comes into the fact that you get micro-scale resolution of, yeah. of the CT. And it, it, it's set to kill, <laughs> set to 11, so it... Needs to be <laughs> luckily, luckily, fossils are pre-killed. Already dead. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, well, all set to go in a CT scan. This is terrible. Okay, <laughs> moving on. <laughs> so I also asked him what kind of cellular detail is preserved because I really like cells. Yeah. I'm really interested in what he's able to see specifically. Mm. Um, you can see the cell walls. Yeah. Um, and then the lumens, which is basically the cavity of all the cellular stuff um, mm-hmm. 
what you sometimes you can get nuclei preserved and they're wow. very rare very 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 rare and it's not like you can like sequence the dna and so forth it's, it's just you get basically an impression of the nuclei and um sometimes there's it's very rare um you can see the actual nuclei divide and so forth um, wow that is super super rare like one out of two million fossils mm -hmm. um probably even less but um but you get the idea but you most certainly will see the cell walls and secondary cell walls and the pits and the walls and that forth but um and then the cells shape right and that's yeah. helpful for understanding what type of cell it is so yeah that's sort of the uh structures that are preserved yeah. by criminalization of fossils that's so mm. cool like mm -hmm. it's rare to see the nuclei but that you can that level yeah. of resolution mm -hmm. is mm -hmm. incredible mm -hmm. yeah. yeah that's really so cool. i'm really curious we'll probably go on to talk about this but i'm really curious how you got in touch with yeah like oh yeah yeah absolutely let me so well so i wanted to do a plant-based episode this season because I kind of love mm -hmm. plants. I think they're really cool. And I did one last season as well. Check out lichens. So I was kind of just like Googling around originally and I was trying to look for people who did interesting botany stuff. So then I, I was just on Twitter and I searched the hashtag black and botany because I don't know if you guys know about the black in science weeks, but they've been really like great initiatives to highlight scientists who are black and usually all around the world, often in the United States, and to try and get in. So I would use that to kind of like see what people were doing in botany, what sort of things were being explored. And that's how I came across Dr. Atkinson. And I saw, I clicked on the black and botany thing. I clicked on his profile and it said paleobotanist. And I was like, oh, I need to know more <laughs> about paleobotany. Like I hadn't even thought of plant fossils as being like an area of study, although like you know, of course they are. Yeah. It's just not something that had occurred to me. So yeah, then mm -hmm. I sent him an email and I was like, hello, <laughs> I see you're a paleobotanist. I would love to know more about what that yeah, means. Yeah, that's so cool. Much. I know mm, for yeah, a, lot of, cool. a lot of our episodes and like a few of mine, there's been really interesting papers that I've come across that like have talked about something mm -hmm. that I wanted to know more about. Mm -hmm. But to, to go through yeah. it through the black and botany uh, hashtag, that's, yeah. Yeah. And so another thing that I found is he has a he had a blog online for when he was doing some field work mm -hmm. which we'll talk about later because it's really cool and so that was also what kind of like solidified my mm -hmm. wanting to interview him you could say it permineralized it permineralized my oh, desire yes. that was pretty good <laughs> we're keeping that <laughs> anyways so I guess that explains like how you get a fossil, how you get a plant fossil and how you can look at it. But one of the questions that I then had is, well, what are you looking for mm. in a plant fossil when you want to figure out how it's related to other plant fossils and mm -hmm. how it's related to other mm -hmm. plants? So I asked him essentially that, like, what is he looking at or looking for when he's looking at fossils? What am I looking for? It depends on what I got. But, you know, like numbers of parts of particular structures, right? Um, their mm -hmm. shape. And then, you know, how many seeds that they might have or, and then um, that sort of stuff. Um, what, 
may or may not be there. Like maybe this flower has petals, maybe it doesn't, and the positions of things, right? And that's typically what the 3D scans are super helpful for because you can get at that by making like serial sections for the microscope slides, but um, the micro CT is a more straightforward way to get at that. Mm -hmm. And then when I'm making the microscope slides, when I'm looking at the basically the anatomy and histology of these fossils, I'm looking at um, you know the cell types, what types of cells are in there, um, those the positions of the cells, how they um, how particular tissues are distributed throughout the structures and that sort of stuff. And I just basically record that data into giant. Well, to me, they're giant, but maybe to somebody else, they're not that big. Into um, matrices, um, data matrices, and those are kind of um, entered into the um, whatever analysis I'm trying to do. How do you get cells from a fossil without destroying it? Or do you have to destroy it? So to- that's why the micro CT is a really good technique is because it's a non-destructive technique, right? So you get resolution yeah. on the level of you can kind of see the shapes and locations of cells mm-hmm. and the shapes and locations of structures, right? Like, so like seeds are made of many cells and they create like they're a much bigger space. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know how many cells seeds are made of. Probably many. Anyways, they take up a bigger space within the fruit or plant or flower, whatever he's looking at. Mm-hmm. And that will be evident within the fossil through these 3D reconstructions. Obviously, mm-hmm. making microscope sections of fossils is a destructive process, so you lose the fossil. Okay. Or at least yeah, you lose okay. strips of the fossil, but you make them really thin, like it's not like so you don't necessarily have to go through the whole fossil, although he was saying if you're doing serial sectioning to try and get an idea of the 3D reconstruction and serial just means in rep- repeated. Yeah, yeah, in series, like one after the other. Yeah. So then you have to do more and more sections, which goes through more mm-hmm. and more of your fossil, but you can also get more and more information about 3D okay. yeah. reconstructed images that way, too. And as a quick aside, he does have a kind of cool, like, short video on the acetate peel technique, which is the technique he uses to peel off layers of fossil to make sections for yes. his uh, microscope mm-hmm. slides. I was... Because so, I was thinking, like, gonna... how you do this would be, like, you take a piece of really, really strong, like, wire, and you very, very carefully, like, like you would cut a piece of cheese, like, really oh my thin. Oh, gosh. Yeah, that's essentially what I was thinking. But I don't think you'd ever no. be able to get something thin enough. Like, microscope sections have yeah, to be microns yeah. thin. So, yeah, no. Typically, I mean, in my field of study, we use cryo um, freezing within like a certain substrate and then we have a very very sharp blade and you have like this uh, mm-hmm. it's called a cryostat it's a different <laughs> kind of cryostat yeah, yeah, yeah. it's not necessarily the same as cryostats previously discussed <laughs> and it just has like a wheel that you rotate and it'll like it moves the sample up and down over your blade mm-hmm. and it also moves the stage that holds your sample closer by a set number of mm-hmm. microns every time okay. it does that so it moves it closer 12 microns, then it cuts it. So you get a 12 micron cut mm-hmm. or a section. And then you bring it back up, moves it 12 microns closer, yeah, right. cut again. So that's how sectioning works right. in my field. Mm-hmm. But, and it's a frozen sample. But for fossils, I don't think freezing them would help. <laughs> and you're cutting like <laughs> raw. And cutting right? them. Like, it's not like tissue. So, th- 
Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So they use this, he uses this technique called an acetate peel. And I'm going to just pull up this video so you can see, because it's pretty cool. Try and share it to our social media. At Nautidia, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, if you want to get in touch. So this is the acetate peel technique. I have a lot of questions now because (laughs) (laughs) so this acetate technique presumably it's sticky on one side yeah so what it seems like it does is you make an acid etched surface so and then you are able to chemically melt a piece of acetate onto that surface and then what you saw was him peeling Mm. the hardened acetate the solid acetate off and it pulls off that Mm. acid etched surface with it okay because that's it's stuck to the acetate Mm -hmm. right interesting interesting cool so that's that's the acetate peel Mm -hmm. technique i think it looks really cool yeah yeah (laughs) it's like a paleobotanist's bread and butter also (laughs) it was developed like a long time ago and is used all the time it seems like i think like the original paper is from 1954 or something wow yeah Yeah. if it ain't broke don't fix it right (laughs) as he just described he kind of is looking for morphological characteristics, so characteristics of how the plant looks under the microscope and also within micro-CT and counting numbers of things, looking at presence of certain structures, whether or not they're there. And so I asked him next, how does he use then these characteristics to create phylogenetic trees or to map kind of the evolutionary history of these organisms? So one anecdote that I'll add is basically morphology is the way that we can link the extinct Mm -hmm. to the living. Um, And I, so most of the groups that I've worked on have living representatives. And so not only am I collecting morphological data from the fossils, I'm also collecting morphological data from their living relatives. And I also integrate that morphological data with molecular data, the living um, species that are in that matrix. And that is really helpful for adding kind of resolution to evolutionary relationships. And in order to get those evolutionary relationships, I use particular, what are called phylogenetic um, programs. Mm-hmm. Let me just say this, there are a myriad of methods uh, um, estimate how organisms, whether they're living or extinct, are related to one another. Um, there's, you know, you can use parsimony to explain the least number of steps that uh, will explain an evolutionary tree, or you can use more statistical-based methods or likelihood-based methods that are a little bit more complicated. And I will avoid, certainly avoid going down that rabbit hole right now. But um, I typically try to use um, a myriad of methods to see if I can get some form of reciprocal elimination, if I can get similar relationships using different methods. Mm-hmm. Uh, that tells me the data is pretty strong. That's really interesting. I was going to say earlier, it's probably really unique or, or difficult to um, figure out a phylogenetic tree because you don't have the DNA. On mm-hmm. a, with a fossil mm-hmm. like you mentioned that earlier like you can't you don't have the chromosomes you don't have the dna so you can't yeah relate it that way um you can't just run a 23 <laughs> me test <laughs> um see how closely so related to, it is. 
Yeah, so to look at, you know, living relatives and molecular mm-hmm. characteristics and stuff. Mm-hmm. That's really cool. Yeah, so that's pretty much it. I figured, I wasn't sure if you guys would want a brief description of what parsimony is. We want a brief but... description of everything, Sienna. Yeah, that's what I figured. <laughs> that's what I assume <laughs> when I do this podcast. <laughs> but essentially, like, phylogeny 101, you're making trees to show how closely related different species are. And parsimony just means you're looking for the tree with the least number of steps. Okay, not so like say, a physical tree, but, but like a tree of life kind of tree. No. Here we're looking at trees of Green. life. Very confusing when you're also studying yeah, trees yeah. on the trees. <laughs> uh. The first time you said you make a tree, I was like, why? Like, what? I got you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so you're making like a phylogenetic tree, which is a very specific type of tree. It's like the tree of life. And it just shows in like evolutionary or millions of years sorts Mm -hmm. of distances how closely related things are. And this is usually based on trying to find the least number of steps. And this means this is kind of to because the idea is if something evolves once, it's it's not necessarily likely that you will evolve something, lose it, evolve it again, or evolve something on one branch and evolve the exact same thing in a completely mm-hmm. separate branch, right? Like because how evolution is kind of a slow right, and difficult like process. Like how crabs evolved lots of different times. Well, so crabs are not a very parsimonial evolution in that okay. case, right? So that's kind of why you don't want to just use parsimony because then you are a kind of losing information about things that did evolve okay. more than once. So say, or say for instance, you assumed, you assume wings evolved once and everything that has wings is related to a single common ancestor that had wings. Mm -hmm. That's not accurate because bats are very, very different from birds, which are very, very different from flying ants. And bees. And bees. (laughs) So, you know, there's kind of like, you want to take into consideration Mm -hmm. a bunch of different things. Mm -hmm. So both like the likelihood of things evolving how things would have evolved more than once or if they did and that mm-hmm. sort of thing. Interesting. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, he was saying he tries to use like multiple of these mm-hmm. different types of statistical methods and this parsimony method to find a, a representative tree that is most agreed upon between multiple mm-hmm. different methods. So I alluded to this before that he had a blog about some field work he oh, yeah. did. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, alluded. I said this before. <laughs> you alluded very specifically. <laughs> mm-hmm. I alluded with high specificity <laughs> about some field work he was doing uh, previously, I think in 2017 or 2018. Mm-hmm. And so I'm going to play a clip about this where I asked him about this field work. Uh, a few clips, actually, but we're going to start with the first one. Antarctica was actually for most of you know, the 400, uh, over, for over 400 million years uh, around then, Antarctica probably was hospitable to plants. Um, mm-hmm. For most of the evolutionary history of plants, Antarctica was quite hospitable. It was only within a recent, since the Miocene, around 15 to 20 million years ago, yeah. did Antarctica start becoming um, glaciated or mm-hmm. f- fully glaciated, um, which made it inhospitable to plants because uh, basically, you know, as Gondo- the supercontinent Gondwana was um, entering its final phase of its breakup. 
So mm-hmm. as Australia was splitting away from Antarctica and, and as, it was, um, as Antarctica was separating from South America, that opened up the Drake Passage, which allowed a circumpolar current with cold water. So things got colder and drier and um, less hospitable to, to, to live. But for the most part, you know, Antarctica just you know, was quite hospitable. I mean, CO2 levels for most of life's evolutionary history were pretty high. And so, you know, Earth was, you know, for a long while, pretty warm. And mm-hmm. so Antarctica is also pretty warm. Um, and plants, you know, if they could get there and if they can establish themselves, they're, they're, they'll be fine. But yeah, uh, so Antarctica for a long time was indeed uh, covered in um, really expansive forests. Most of those forests were deciduous because of the polar and near polar latitude. So um, you had the extreme daylight cycles, like, you know, several months of darkness. And um, so when it got dark, the plants dropped their leaves and went into hibernation mode, essentially. But, you know, it did, it, it, but there were also rainforests, not tropical ones, but rainforest, you know, forests that mm-hmm. received a lot of rain, very similar to temperate rainforests in the Pacific Northwest. And so, yeah, I mean, there are a lot of dynamic ecosystems in Antarctica through time, and which is kind of counterintuitive to what we know of um, Antarctica as it is today. Mm. That's really cool. So... Antarctica was forested for most of the Mesozoic, which is the era that contains the Triassic, Jurassic, and Cretaceous periods. Mm -hmm. And yeah, he went there to collect plant fossils because not surprisingly, if you had a lot of plants in one place, you also then have a lot of fossils. Mm -hmm. I never would have thought to go to Antarctica to look for plant fossils. It's probably also a really good place for plant fossils because it's probably pretty yeah, undisturbed after it froze over. Yeah, I was going to say exactly you know, the same thing. Human... They must be so well preserved because, like, there haven't been people around there to dig them up, and like, it's very dry. Yeah. Like, it's a very dry continent, isn't it? Yeah, I'm going to play the next clip, which I asked him. You know, what was he doing in Antarctica? <laughs> so. Yeah, so this was not a project that I was the lead on. Um, This project um, was led by my predecessor, um, Dr. Edie Taylor, and a geologist named John Isabel at University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee. And Edie was uh, just um, recently retired from University of Kansas. The idea of that project, at least for the plant side, was to... um, better understand kind of um, the responses of plants across the what's called the Permian-Triassic extinction, which is also known as the Great Dying. This was the biggest uh, mass extinction in the history of life. So we're interested in kind of how the diversity of plants had changed. And so, yeah, that was kind of the gist of it. It's funny that you ask that is because I just got a grant funded to return to Antarctica to work on Cretaceous plants, those um, that are, you know, between Mm -hmm. 145 and 66 million years ago. 
basically, you know, close to when T-Rex was roaming around <laughs> and um, to study the flowering plants of Antarctica, the early flowering plants. Flowering plants of Antarctica. I never thought that would be a sentence. Yeah, though, right. I would say. <laughs> oh, congratulations to him as cool. well. For yeah. His grant. Yeah. Yeah. So the research is um, expected to start in 2022. That's when mm. they're likely to go down there and start collecting fossils. Yeah. Um, mm. Which is pretty cool. And pretty wild As stuff. I understand it, not many people have been to Antarctica, right? I mean, like, a lot of people go, but it's, like, nobody lives there. It's a, there's kind of a few science outposts, yeah. and they do science. Yeah, so I kind of asked him a few more questions just about what it was like to be in Antarctica. I'm guessing and... cold. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think it's kind of cold. <laughs> and penguins. Cold and penguins. Yeah. Cold and penguins. So, yeah, here's just some to talk about what it was like to be in Antarctica on a research field trip. You know, I, hung, I was nervous because I'm like, mm-hmm. either I'm going to love it or I'm going to hate it. Like, <laughs> <laughs> unfortunately, I really loved it. Um, That's it awesome. was such a surreal and alien experience because, like, an when we were down there in 2017, we came across these fossil forests that were about 255 million years old. And so there's these stumps that are just jutting out of the rock and they're um, mm-hmm. in living position. Yeah. And if you think about it, I mean, Antarctica is like a different planet and then you're coming across a fossil forest. So you're like yeah. space travel and time travel combined. And you're like, whoa. Um, super, just super, super surreal. Um, yeah, it sounds like it. It was quite the experience. That sounds so just jutting out of the mm. rocks. There's these fossilized mm-hmm. forests. Wow, mind blowing. Mm. Yeah, these massive stumps. Like they're large stumps. Yeah, I also think it must be. I mean, I've never been to Kansas, but I think it's pretty hot in Kansas. So to go from like hot southern state to yeah. Antarctica, yeah. like, big change in yeah, climate. Yeah, I mean, like, it's not going from, like, the Arctic to the Antarctic. That would be a different thing. Yeah. I think Kansas gets pretty cold, or coldish in the, in winter. the winter. Like, I don't think Probably. it's, I don't think it's, like, um, California, you know? Right. But I think because yeah. it's, because it it's central, it doesn't have, like, the warming yeah. currents off the ocean, yeah. Mm-hmm. See. Yeah, I guess but, you're right. But yeah, probably pretty hot in the summer still. Yeah, it's, it's so Like Montreal. <laughs> <laughs> like Montreal or Kingston. I think it's funny that he said, like, it's a different planet because it's, mm-hmm. it's not, but it definitely yeah. would feel like it. And yeah. I think you can go to a lot of places on Earth that are just so vastly foreign mm-hmm. and different yeah. and, like, I don't know. We I'm... talk about that a bit in my astrobiology episode. Yeah, but yeah, I think yeah. it's, a really, um, it's a really harmonious link because there are these environments and places on earth that are just so devastatingly different than what we're used to living in and what we're used to experiencing mm-hmm. antarctica is definitely one of those places and it's it does, yeah. it's also interesting to think we always have to bring it back to space in this season yeah. i think <laughs> um that like when we think of planets like other planets if you think of like star wars there's like mm-hmm. Endor, which is the green, luscious moon, and there's Hoth, yeah. which is the snowy planet. And it's like, okay, Earth is very diverse in its climates mm-hmm. across mm. Earth. So what's to say that other planets have a homogenous, you know, climate? I think, 
<laughs> I don't think they would. Yeah, I think that's exactly. like a very science fiction writing type thing to think of, well, what's the kind of a extreme environment on Earth or like a particular ecosystem on Earth and expand it to a whole yeah. planet. Yeah. Right. But yeah, all of that is just subsections of what we have on our actual planet. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Which is pretty crazy. Which crazy I guess, like, stuff. for science fiction, it makes sense because then people can imagine what a snow planet would be like. Yeah, yeah, you have some snow. kind of, like, yeah. system of reference. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I asked him, because he's going back, what is he going to be looking for more specifically in mm-hmm. Antarctica the next time? So I'm looking to, you know, um, basically understand when... Um, may you know important southern hemisphere plant groups evolved and these fossils you know these fossils potentially be really important for understanding that which would give us a better understanding of kind of the evolutionary tempo Mm. of flowering plants in the southern hemisphere early in their diversification and i'm also interested in the biogeography of these plants and if there's any connection you know, just because we see these groups in the southern hemisphere restricted into the southern hemisphere today, doesn't always mean they were earlier on in their history, right? Mm-hmm. And so I'm interested in kind of teasing that part. One of the better examples of that are Araucarias, monkey puzzle trees. Okay. Um, early in their evolutionary history, they were, um, you know, cosmopolitan. They're everywhere. Mm-hmm. And then today, you can only find them in the southern hemisphere. Um, there are a few flowering plant groups that kind of show that same pattern, but not very many. And I'm mm-hmm. hoping to um, use these fossils to kind of assess that a little bit further. How long is he going for? Do you know? Uh, okay, so last his last trip was two months. Oh, wow. Antarctica. Okay. Yeah. Wow. That's longer than I expected. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's a... A committed, yeah. <laughs> a committed amount of time. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so probably something similar, I would imagine. Mm-hmm. Like he said, it's not just his research team that goes down and collects fossils on research trips like this. He's collaborating with other groups and collecting also probably animal fossils, dinosaur fossils as well. Because if you're going, you might as well bring back everything. Well, yeah, you can. yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm kind of curious how they would do the fossil collection and like digs because if you think about f- fossil uh like what are they called paleontologists mm-hmm. if you think about paleontologists you often think of like people in wide brim hats <laughs> in the desert dusting mm-hmm. off you know so how do you do that in antarctica when there's snow and penguins mm, around yeah also you're presumably not as like dexterous because you will have Gloves. like huge <laughs> massive gloves on to stop your fingers from freezing off yeah well and i think like plants fossilize in kind of different ways than animal bones do Mm -hmm. Mm. but again i think mostly what you're doing is you're just chipping off pieces of rock that contain the fossil Mm -hmm. so like if you find a section of rock and you see like an imprint or a fossil in it that's very likely going to mean there's more fossils within that rock because it was a place where fossilization could occur Mm -hmm. so then you're Mm going to like chip at that rock and take pieces of it with fossils Okay. away with you yeah as far as I and then i guess like you don't have to be super precise there like if you've got a massive hunk of rock with you although i don't know because you'll probably have re- weight restrictions definitely there's going to be weight restrictions on the planes flying yeah yeah Antarctica. exactly 
So yeah, I think you have to be probably yeah. a little bit, maybe a little bit precious about it, but maybe also there's sort of like a few trips back and forth with the fossils. I don't really know how this stuff works. I probably should have asked. So yeah, this is bringing us close to the end. I guess the last main, I kind of like two more main clips, which I think are interesting and I want to share, which is, of course, why is he interested in studying this? You know, mm-hmm. Why is he interested in looking yeah. at plant fossils and understanding evolutionary relationships? So Plants are almost everywhere, um, on all the continents, <laughs> and are, you know, everything from our economy to our culture to our everyday lives depend on plants. Like, there's no way, there's no way around it. Plants are integral to or just they're the foundation to our existence to other animals existences and so forth mm-hmm. um i mean they're the majority of biomass on, on, on the planet vast majority so um if we really want to understand like kind of how life kind of came to be and evolved plants are super important for understanding that why am I interested? I just, um, well, as I told you, I just was super curious about plants because they're so weird and different and they're so understudied um, mm-hmm. when you consider their, when you consider um, how important they are to us. And so I guess I got, it's, you know, botany in general, plant biology is kind of a smaller field compared to like zoology. And so we have our work cut out for us because there's, you know, so much work to be done and relatively not as many of us as there are in other biological fields. For that reason, I think, you know, I figured this is an important field. And if we want to understand kind of biodiversity today, we got to understand evolution, of course. And fossils are, are I think, an obvious, um, obviously important source of data for understanding evolution. Yeah. Mm. I've heard that. It is really interesting. It's, yeah. 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 I've heard that before that plants are really understudied. Mm -hmm. And I guess, I don't know, like, whether this is the case, but in my mind, I guess it's the same as, like, it's like the extreme version of, like, insects and worms and some fish and stuff really understudied as well because, like, or and like conservation attempts for those kinds of animals it's much more difficult than for like fuzzy furry mammals because it's much easier to like i guess maybe being a fuzzy furry mammal myself it's kind of easier to like have some kind of empathy with like the cute furry creatures Mm -hmm. which is why it's more difficult to like get public attention for for non furry animals Mm -hmm. and I wonder if that like if our lack of attention on plants is like the logical extreme of that bias yeah I think that's probably part of it I mean it's maybe also just because they're so ubiquitous we take them for granted Mm. a little bit you know Mm, yeah but and I think it depends on like definitely in western science they're understudied and not very well understood but i think there's been a lot more sort of indigenous relationships with plants that um have contributed more to our understanding and probably have more information as well mm, that's probably fair 
I think right? we. Like the, I think probably even in Western agriculturally speaking, that's for sure. Yeah, true. Um, I think in Western society we probably did have that, and then we lost it. Like we did have a much closer relationship with plants and plant medicine and the power of plants and that kind of thing and I think maybe we've lost it but I don't maybe. know I'm not an expert it's funny you mentioned that Sienna because while I was talking about that clip I was thinking about a book that's on my bookshelf mm-hmm. actually it's beside my bed I, I've been meaning to read it I've been busy with other things is it Robin Wall Kimmerer's book yeah Brady yep. Sweetgrass <laughs> I got it over the summer yes. and I've been super excited and wanting to read mm-hmm. it um, but I actually saw a talk by her. Oh wow! Um, cool. That was about um, just yeah, incorporating native plants and and kind of indigeneity into mm-hmm. how we. Uh, it was it was about f- like food and agriculture and kind of just yeah how we can be more mindful about how we plant gardens and how we grow mm-hmm. food. Yeah, stuff. exactly. Um, but you also you also mentioned. Well, he, he said, you know, plants are on every continent and they're so ubiquitous. And, and you kind of said, we take them for granted. Mm-hmm. And I was, as he was saying that, I was looking around my room and looking at all these photos I have and stuff. And like in almost every photo that I have of me with friends or like, you know, me <laughs> doing stuff, there's a plant in the photo somewhere. They're everywhere. Like, <laughs> they're spying yeah, There's a few on of them you. that I'm like inside. But yeah, but like even just behind me, I, yeah. there's a painting I made of trees. Yeah, that's <laughs> like, true. Exactly. They're everywhere. They are. It's true. They are. I have a bunch on my desk right now. So I asked him, I mean, to follow up, then I also asked him, why does he love his work? Or what does what does he love the most about his work? Because I think it's interesting to hear Mm -hmm. people talk about their passion for their field. Mm -hmm. So this is him answering that question. You know, some of my favorite parts about my job is kind of the the discovery aspect of just finding something that's just, as far as we know it, new, you know, just completely new to science. But I also, you know, I also understand that some, it might be new to Western science, whereas, you know, other groups of people may have found things before. Certainly I have. Um, yeah. But coming across something I've never seen before is also really just please, um, really exciting and some of these sections that I make out of these plant fossils are just, to me, just, it's just like kind of where art intersects um, Mm. with science. It's just super aesthetically pleasing to me. I mean, they often can look like stained glass, you know, Mm. and um, um, anyways, and just kind of spending time with the fossil making these sections and under standing it better and trying to figure out what it is and where it belongs on the tree life is just one of the more satisfying processes of my work. So yeah, I think it's... That's really yeah. pretty. It was honestly just such a pleasure to talk to him because he clearly did, like he said at the beginning, he found his spark with plant fossils. Mm. And like it was very evident through his like the whole conversation with him and how much knowledge he had on all of the subjects pertaining to plant fossils. Um, it was clear that this was his passion. So it's nice yeah. to hear from it. Yeah, it's um, always really cool yeah. to like talk to people mm-hmm. and hear people talk about what they love. Mm-hmm. And so I have one last clip 
to play before we get to the quiz because I have a little bit of time. I I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm gonna take yeah. a little bit of time for this one because yeah, this one is it. kind of it's kind of just a fun clip because obviously since he's a botanist, I had to ask him what is his favorite plant, <laughs> and you'll mm. see that he uh, flips the script okay. too. So. <laughs> I, you know, I don't have very many house plants because my cat is uh. just, uh, she can't, she can't resist a good plant. She just loves <laughs> to see that fall. But, you know, some of my favorite plants are actually uh, Magnolia stellata, mm. um, it's gorgeous flowers, and I like Calicanthus, which is, you can um, kind of find it towards um Oh, it's found in it's found in the United States. It's um, and it's sometimes a uh, ornamental, but um, some people call it spice bush, and some people call it other stuff. It has these really nice red flowers. And then calicordis, which is different from calicanthus. Calicordis is somewhat closely related to lilies, and they have these mm-hmm. really furry flowers that are just super cute. Okay. <laughs> um, <laughs> they look like cat paws. Um, <laughs> and yeah, so those are my, some of my favorite plants and ginkgo is another one. I mean, they're all, they're all my favorites, but those are the ones that stand out. What can you yeah. Tell me? You have any favorite plants? Uh, I'm, that's a great question. I love magnolias as well because they're so beautiful in the spring. It's, mm-hmm. it's totally. hard to compare, but I also have at home a few plants right now and they're kind of, I love them all differently. <laughs> sure. But I have cool. this. I have this very crinkly fern that I nice. have on my desk. It's uh, supposedly good I, for air quality too. But I don't know. It's I can show you. It's so. sure you see it. <laughs> oh yeah, cool. It's uh, very crinkled. Yeah, is that like a bird's nest fern? I I'm so bad with plant names, and I yeah could be bird's nest fern. Yeah. Bird's nest fern, Esplenium. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah. So I think that's probably my fav, one of my favorite plants. I have quite a few nice plants. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> Trust the paleobotanist to be that's able to identify. That's really sweet. <laughs> I know. Wait, can you can you show us I your would fern? I to show you my bird's nest fern. As this I now will one hundred percent go on our social media. Oh, look so at that. Good. She's so crinkled. That's the finale, I guess, of this episode. We actually talked. It was great interviewing him. We talked a lot. He answered. I had like a lot of irrelevant plant questions. Some that like because I had had a question that I thought of for the quizzode, but then just didn't really know the or understand the answer for. So I asked him about it. And then I also asked him about like living fossil plants, which are really cool. And there's like, it's just essentially examples of plants that probably were on their way to extinction, but because somebody was actually culturing them somewhere in the world, they didn't go extinct because they were being kept alive by Mm -hmm. people. And so ginkgo is a very good example of this. So ginkgo is a living fossil. It was discovered um, to be like, people thought it was extinct for a very long time. It was in the fossil record. And we had no living examples of it on Earth until one day they found these monks who were just growing it in there. Um, yeah, I guess in the cool. monastery grounds. Or, um, so, wow. yeah, they were culturing it. And apparently it's very amenable to being agriculturally uh, kept alive. So now now you see it everywhere. I don't know. I don't know if yeah. I mean, everywhere in North America, for sure. It's on like all of the city streets. 
Every city I've lived in has hmm. ginkgo on the streets. Wait, ginkgos are those ones that have the, the really smelly berries, Yeah, right? and the fan-shaped leaves. The fan-shaped leaves are very yeah. this is obvious not, This ginkgo. does not mean anything to me. I'm going to have to okay. do a Google. It's funny because, yeah, I actually was going to bring those up because I knew I they stink. The berries stink. But I knew that they were, like, one of the oldest trees hmm. that still are alive so ginkgo is not i'm not sure if it's one of the oldest living trees but definitely probably what you're thinking of is the fact that it's a living fossil so it's a very it's not really yeah. almost meant to be around or at least all of its relatives went extinct and it was on its way to extinction it, it probably went extinct except for in this one place where they were growing it you know That's yeah so cool yeah um so yeah i'm hoping that we can hmm. in the in between period between seasons we can release the full interviews of some of our guests and that's one i would really like mm, to release because mm-hmm. we have some pretty interesting conversations totally um yeah yeah before we get to the quiz we should probably we didn't plug our socials I did. very much this episode I yeah did. i heard beth do it once one. <laughs> <laughs> but i can do it again yeah unless you have a particular desire to alistair go for it i want to do it you can check us out on facebook instagram and twitter at not yet a doctor that's not yet a dr and if you have questions or comments or concerns, you can send us an email at phd3tob at gmail.com. That's phd32b Please at remember to... I can't remember the song now. To tie a knot in your pyjamas. Uh, and also, please remember to uh, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Rate and review if your podcast uh, distributor has the option. And um, send us around. Let Tie a knot in your pajamas. pajamas? Tie a knot in your pajamas. It's the. Um, uh, do you know the, the song? The turn in the bed and little one said, roll over. You don't know that song? Not particularly. I know yeah, that yeah, song. Yeah. And then um, there's a version of it that goes like, um, please remember. To tie a knot in your pajamas, single beds were only made for ten, nine, eight, like that. And why was it referenced? Why did it come to mind? Because I said, please remember. Oh, okay. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah, okay. Beth's knowledge of, like, strange, strange, alternative childhood uh, nursery rhymes, etc., songs... You can say strange, I'm not... Well, somebody else might not think they're strange, too, and strange is not necessarily accurate. But, you know, (laughs) alternative to my childhood... strange is also not necessarily bad. Okay, so, moving swiftly forward... (laughs) Yes. uh, Evolving, diversifying rapidly... (laughs) Diversifying rapidly from 65 million years. We are going to get right into the quiz. So, I'm going to need you to hear your guys' buzzer sounds. Oh, gosh. Okay, Beth, I think I heard it. Well, Beth, you took mine. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) So I'm going to do... uh, And that's the sound of uh, fossilization. What was it called? Permineralization. (laughs) Okay, so I'll scratch that off my quiz questions. (laughs) (laughs) No, I'm joking. That wasn't one of them. Uh, (laughs) um, Um, I wish that our listeners could... Uh, see Alice's gestures when he goes yeah we should really turn this into a video podcast someday because well that would be so much more editing oh my god but no (laughs) (laughs) I'm happy with the audio only format and honestly our listeners probably are too 
I think yeah. the one time that Alistair moves his arms is not enough to make up for the millions of times of Sienna's <laughs> internet cutting out. <laughs> yeah, true. Okay, so question numero uno, number one. What is weird about plant reproduction? Go, Alistair. I heard you rocking. Plants actually have, like, two uh, organisms. Not organisms. Oh, God. They have haploid and diploid cells that produce other cells through mitosis. Yeah. And so that's what's weird. Pretty much. So they pretty much have, like, two structures that form. Structures. Yeah, structures yes, maybe not organisms. But the gametophyte yeah. and the sporophyte. Is what they're called because one produces gametes, the other produces spores. Spores. Cool, cool. Yeah. Uh, so point to you, Alistair. Great job. Thank Plant you. reproduction Just is remember weird. Remember that every time, <laughs> every time you get seasonal allergies from pollen, it's the plant sperm. Yeah, it's true. In your nose. <laughs> that do be that do be true. It's disturbing. Uh, question number two: What is permineralization? I'm going to give this one to Beth. Thank you. Okay. It's the process by which um, when an organism dies, it becomes fossilized. So what happens is that the water in the cells gradually gets replaced by water from the environment, which has a lot of minerals in it. And so the, the exchange of, that, of those minerals and the water containing the minerals creates kind of a mineralized structure around the cells of the organism and so it kind of um, retains the structure that the organism's cells had. Mm-hmm. Anything to add, Alistair? Um, that's much better than my answer. My answer was going to be <laughs> <laughs> um, I would just add to that is it, it's occurring within the cells as well, so the water of the cells is, can also be replaced with minerals. Okay within and around uh okay tiebreaker question oh and oh this one we'll see how you guys do we'll see how much you've been paying attention when do flowering plants seem to arise in the fossil record alistair 150 million years ago beth do you have a guess um the cretaceous period yes so the Cretaceous period, and I think approximately 140 million years ago. So you're both pretty right. Um, <laughs> we both win again! Points to everyone! <laughs> <laughs> but they, they diversified very quickly up until about 65 million years ago, right? Yeah. They diversified... Well, so they... Yeah, exactly. It was between 140 and 65 million years ago they arrived and then had a rapid diversification. Mm-hmm. And this is all on the super con- supercontinent, beginning with a G, that I, whose name I can't remember. Uh, I have it on my Gondwana, the supercontinent Gondwana. Gondwana. I was going to say Guana, which was close, but which, not quite yeah. correct. Gondwana, which makes up of like South America, um, Southern Africa, and Australia, Australia and Antarctica. And Art- Antarctica. Yes, but it's not. It's not just there. There's also flowering plants on the other supercontinent. Yeah, okay. Not just in Gondwana, but... Um, but it was at the time that, like, Gondwana was still a thing. Yes, exactly. During the Cretaceous period, you're right. And Yeah. I, Gondwana, I think Gondwana was a thing also before the Cretaceous period. 
Yeah, so I'm about... He said that it was, like, separating them. Yeah, it began to break up, actually, during the Jurassic, which is 180 million years ago, before the Cretaceous. Sorry, did I black out? Was there a clip about this? Yeah, he was saying how um, he went to Antarctica because... um, because there were like currents, and then because it was like oh yes, at the time I do that remember it was all this. separating, and then sorry, uh, I yeah. just I just didn't hear the bit about Gondwana. I think I was just thinking about plants. Yeah. <laughs> well, to recap <laughs> for you, Alistair, about ferns. <laughs> Gondwana was pretty. I mean, Antarctica was pretty warm because it was this part of this supermassive continent called Gondwana, attached to Australia and right. South America. But it was yeah. starting to break up over that time. But um, and there were the rainforests and stuff. Yeah. Yeah, I remember the clip. So I remember all of that. Okay, I just okay, didn't. Okay, okay. I didn't process Gondwana as mm-hmm. supercontinent. As I, it's already only mentioned yes. once. Yeah. Okay. Well, that is everything. You guys did great on the quiz. I think Beth wins this one. So great job, Beth. I thought we all won. Sometimes, sometimes <laughs> well, we okay, don't. That's fine. <laughs> oh, okay. Life's not always always fair, Alistair. I mean, we that's can only fine. all win if we do actually have a tie, right? So. I'm I thought sure it was a tie. a tie. Oh, I'm pretty oh, sure you right, gave us you both, both points for the last question, and then Beth yeah, just yeah, talked yeah, about yeah. Gondwana. Sorry. And I only mentioned the Gondwana bit because Alistair went off and like said to Daddy more detail. I was, I was worried that he was going to get an extra point, <laughs> so I wanted to earn one back for myself. <laughs> well, let me correct myself from earlier. I was wrong. We all win again. <laughs> <laughs> Good job, guys. Thank you for following along with the story. And thank huge thank you to Dr. Brian Atkinson at the University of Kansas for taking the time to talk to me and answer all of my questions about plant fossils. Thanks also to Alison. Thank you, Alison, for the music that's going to take you out of here. My name is Sienna. My name is Beth. And my name is Alistair. That's the show.